Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Kafri J. Kafri is the founder of Hip Hop for Change, an organization to advance social justice and hip hop activism in the Bay Area. Kafri was influenced by hip hop artists early in his teen years, and after getting into some trouble at a public high school, he enrolled in the School of Arts in San Francisco. Kafri was able to find an outlet for all of his anger and frustration and started taking back his own power through music. After spending a few years studying psychology in college, Kafri returned to San Francisco and got a job as a director at Greenpeace. In 2013, however, he combined his love of education, hip-hop, and his new experiences of canvassing and fundraising and launched Hip-Hop for Change. Listeners, I hope you enjoy and learn as much as I did during this conversation. Kafri, I'm so excited to be welcoming you to the For Your Listening Pleasure podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I love what you are doing. And for our listeners who don't know or haven't heard about Hip Hop for Change or who you are, would you mind introducing yourself? Not at all. Uh, First off, uh, thanks for giving me the space uh, to talk to your folks. Social capital is what we really need. So I really appreciate the platform. Um, But my name is Kyle Free J. I'm from San Francisco, uh, Hunters Point, the spot that is not on the tourist map. And as of last year, Hip Hop for Change uh, is a 501c3 hip hop education org that just became the largest hip hop education org in the nation. Um, So it's very macro, very large, but in a, in a nutshell, we use hip hop uh, to organize our community because hip hop has always organized our community. We just kind of lost the means of producing it. Uh, so we're organizing that production under 501c3. We're giving people jobs. We taught 30,000 kids K through 12. We throw huge hip hop shows rooted in social justice that provide paychecks for the artists that the industry won't put on. The artists that really reflect who we are as a people, uh, but, but don't get heard. So uh, we're rocking. Uh, we're trying to expand to LA, New York, and we're trying to take back our culture. So if anybody's interested in that uh, and changing what our young kids see uh, and the lexicon and language that they're dealing with in their communities through their culture, holla at us. We really need you. So last time when we spoke, I remember I asked every guest kind of during their prep calls, what's your biggest failure? And you said to me, robbing people every day. And I remember kind of saying, wait, excuse me. (laughs) Can you say that again? Because I wasn't sure. You grew up in not a great area of the Bay from what we talked about. And your parents worked really hard. You were not really into school or you were bored, not really feeling it. But then something really changed in your background. And you got given an opportunity to go to an art school because your brother was already there. And that shifted. And I remember you said that art saved you. And I think that's so important because now we see that art programs are getting cut left and right from schools. But can you tell us a little bit about what life was growing up? So so I'll say this, Hunter's Point, where I grew up, on paper, it's a bad neighborhood. It's the neighborhood they say don't go to, right? But for me, as a young Black man, that was the safest place in the Bay Area for me to be. Uh, It's the place where I could be myself, um, I got beaten up at gunpoint twice by the SFPD because two white ladies said me and my homies were 
you know, deserved it. You know, I remember the first day I cashed my first check, four of us went to the bank because we all worked for the San Francisco League of Urban Gardens, gardening. Uh, but four black 15 year olds going into a bank meant somebody called the police. And I don't know if you've ever seen the SFPD think that you and your three homies are robbing a bank, but wow. Uh, so um, I would say that Frisco at Hunter's Point, that was always home. It was a good neighborhood, but again, poverty brings certain things that correlate with poverty, like some certain types of crime, right? So I guess people are scared of us, but I was always rooted in art. And art was really important to me, but I was also angry. I was also traumatized. I was dealing with like male toxicity and, you know, trying to find out where to be powerful and what that meant as, as a young man. Um, and I kind of fell into the wrong crowd. Um, and that kind of stopped my, my focus on my art. And, you know, right in the time where I'm kind of becoming myself, learning who I am, uh, you know, in its truest sense. But I think that when I got kicked out of that school, when I got you know, arrested that one time. It was a wake up call. And then I got into School of the Arts and whether or not I had the language for it then, that was a really meditative space. It was like one of the first times in a long time that I'd gone to a place uh, to learn and no one was judging me, you know what I'm saying? They actually thought I was cool. And I also had art, uh, you know, creative expression and, and a really dedicated time to just meditate through my own you know, growth. So. I didn't have the language then, but that's exactly what my, my, my organization is rooted in now. You know, cultural expression that embodies people's identities. That's why kids fall in love with hip hop. It's, it's just what kids in the urban communities do uh, and what everybody in the suburbs wants to as well. So how did you find your voice? Talking just now about walking to a bank and the police getting called at 15, that has to be traumatizing. And yeah, I would be angry and scared and questioning why would people look at me without knowing me assuming this but you had nowhere to put that angst so how did you start to find your voice and use it for the better I think so I think everybody has a voice right no matter how much you tell yourself you don't you're gonna you're gonna do something right that voice might tell you to not do things and not have a big impact but you're gonna have your own moral grounds your own basis of how the world should work um, I think for me, I don't know, I, you know, I, I, and I, I take this from having a really solid family that told me that I had to, you know, be self-determinative when I walk out of this community, because if I don't make it for myself, there's nothing promised to me in this country, you know what I'm saying? Um, so I've always had this really solid work ethic on trying to just make sure I could survive. Like that's, when you're from the hood, you gotta hustle. And and I think we all have drive, but my job is to make sure that people have access to going, learning how to rap, you know, because these are learned behaviors, you know what I'm saying? So some people might learn to be silent, but when you work with a kid in my community, we might teach them to break dance. And now they have something that gets them healthy and they start talking about proprioception and vestibular sense. And now they're half of them are vegan, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, you show them chiaroscuro through spray cans and they already want to do that anyway. It's just the language, it gives them something to have a voice through. Cause we've all got the words, we've all got the moral grounds. But, but, but speaking up and organizing your thoughts is a learned behavior. So who's telling these little homies how to do it in a way that reflects who they are? You know, for example, band class, right? We're, we're teaching kids William Tell's Overture and, and wondering why they're not falling in love with the music and the math and the resonance of the music, you know? And I'm like, what are you doing? Why, why aren't you doing hip hop? Like, there's no hip hop in there. And, and I get it. And I was first chair jazz band trumpet. But you know, that, that's just it. You know, I minored in ceramic sculpture 
But I was just having this uh, conversation with the, I think Dr. Jackson of the NEA, National Endowment of the Arts. And I was like, we always talk about helping kids in the hood. And we always think of a kid that looks like me. We don't think just blanket kid. We look at hip hop kids. We know they're hip hop. And, and I love ceramics, but that's not gonna save the hood. That might save a few kids. But if we invite, like we give them access to the, the means of producing the hip hop, they'll fall in love with that. And that'll give them the voice. That'll, that'll get them to dig into to the history of hip hop. Find out what it's actually done, how it's like rooted our people, grounded us in black movements and, and ladies first and giving us these cultural moments that progressed us further. If they can learn that history, they don't really talk about BS no more. You know what I'm saying? They hear their ancestral drums and now they want to help their hood. It's just what happens when you start getting down. In preparing for this interview, I listened to a few other podcasts that you've been featured on. And what I found so interesting is that you went from not really loving learning to in college, loving learning. You switched your major a lot. You took classes that you just inspired you, you found interesting, and you kind of landed in psychology. And I also took classes that I just found really fascinating. I'm a grandchild of two Holocaust survivors. And I really wanted to understand my history, what they went through, and also the psychology of how people could treat others like that. And I feel like a lot of searchers who are going and figuring out their journey always make a detour in psychology at some point when they're going through school. But you ended up not, you're what, three credits shy, I think? You know, I think it's like three or four, two classes, two or yeah. three. Classes. I'm not sure, something like that. And that was also back then, so I don't even know what it is now. Why did you decide to leave school before graduating? Um, so let's let's back up a little bit because uh, my dad worked his behind off to put me in a private Montessori school till he couldn't afford it after fifth grade. So I've always loved learning, right? I've always been really smart. Uh, and then in sixth grade, I get dropped into James Lick Middle School, which was horrible back then. Um, and the first semester, I had a 1.17 GPA, and I got into 13 fights, which really just means people were beating me up. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to get beat up no more. I was really mad. Um, and, and that, that kind of led me on the pathway to standing up for myself and learning certain types of masculinity, you know, that kind of led me down the wrong thing and almost, you know, ruined everything. But um I think when I got to, to college the first time, I, I was loving picking my classes, but I don't really think I was as invested in it or I was as ready. You know, sometimes you tell kids, go, go to college, go to college. Some kids shouldn't just go to college, you know what I'm saying? But I always loved learning, you know what I'm saying? So when I got there, it was really interesting. I was taking all these different things. I switched my major and I was fighting math. So um, yeah, and I think after about four years, I was like, yo, I got to go do something else. I think I there was a woman involved with me going up north to Ukiah. Uh, you know, we don't need to talk about that. But, you know, um, when I got back to school uh, the last time, I was shining. I almost had a 4.0 GPA. That was right when I started Hip Hop for Change. I was about to get my BA in international relations. I was done with psychology. Now I was like, let's, I was an activist now. I was like, let me learn this on a global scale, you know. Um, and I had to drop out because Hip Hop for Change became too big. You know what I'm saying? I had... I had too many coworkers that I had to care for. And uh, I actually had to turn in a final report by 11.59. I, I pressed send and then I closed my computer, woke up and it hadn't sent and I failed a class. <laughs> and I was so stressed out because <laughs> I was taking 13 units and working like 65 hours a week um, that I was just like, I can't do this. It, it was too much. 
So advocacy, when you're young, you want to get involved. You really want to fix the system, make a difference. And sometimes I know I've experienced where the task of like, when you look at the road ahead is daunting. It is, it's a lot. And you think I'm one person, what kind of difference can I really make? But you've spent a lot of your career first with Greenpeace and you were one of the, I used to live in San Francisco, but, and I remember you were one of the guys on the street talking to people about global warming and let's save the polar bears and what, what you need to know. How did, did that find you or did you find it? Oh, yo, I found that. I mean, I, you know, you choose, you choose what you want to give your time to. Um, yeah. I remember I thought I was going to be like $200 short on something. And I worked for McDonald's for three days just to make enough money to get what I needed to quit. You know, that's how I work with jobs, but I don't know. I, I used to sell perfume, <laughs> like knockoff perfume business to business. I, I've always had weird jobs that have prepared me, you know what I'm saying, for certain things. And when I got back from Ukiah, I just needed a job real quick. And I was like, I can talk. I got mouthpiece. So, you know, Greenpeace will hire anybody. I can just get a job right now. And I kind of fell in love with it. Um, yeah, I, I fell in love with it. I, I also am really good at it even though it's really hard to get folks to get your give them their credit card when you have a gold grill and a hoodie on. And I don't take mine off for nobody, but I got good. And um, I think that's where I, I learned that methodology of grassroots fundraising. I was like, this, it's, it's how we do it when it comes to hip hop shows and events. Like every culture and community has different methods of accruing money. Uh, and I was like, wow, I get this. And after directing and seeing how much money was going through my hands for Greenpeace, you know, I just had this idea, why can't I do that for hip hop? If I couple that matter of fact with hip hop, I could also support all the homies I've been rapping at and going to cyphers with who are all hurting, who are all broke. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're positive, they're not paying you. You know what I'm saying? You're like rapping on your homie show and he can barely pay you and he needs you to pass out flyers, you know? And we do it for the love. But um, yeah, I just got mad one day. Um, I got mad one day when I couldn't get paid for a show and I just had this inceptive moment. If I could put grassroots fundraising uh, behind hip hop events and shows, it could be this beautiful synthesis of kind of a for-profit model that's rooted in culture and self-affirmation and, you know, organizing our community. And I can mix that with teaching people how to become mega Evers and how to be Wells, uh, you know, and get out there, you know, learn how to stand strong in these neighborhoods where we never had power and get that power. Uh, it was quite interesting. So yeah, I, I've been stuck doing this <laughs> for nine years because I don't know what else is cooler. At this point, I don't know what else is cooler. And I get to see second graders trying to rap battle and break dance. I don't know what else is cooler. So I'm, I'm just stuck now. <laughs> I think that's an adorable image thinking about that because when kids are that young and you're giving them that tool, like those tools, they still have their innocence about them. They still are thinking the world is amazing and they can do anything. It's not like they've been taught to hate. They haven't been taught all the negative things that as we grow up, society either teaches us, we hear about, or, you know, is pushed on us. You still have their innocence. And I think what you're doing, encouraging kids to start to use their voice. I hope that they continue to do it because that's how we create a more empathetic no. society. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I know every kid is not going to just become a breaker, uh, but I know most kids at least understand the value of my culture. You know what I'm saying? Whether they're of it or not. But, but also, um, I teach K through 12, or we teach K through 12 with breakdancing. But I said second graders for a specific reason, 
Because not only are we showing these kids they can do it, but when I tell people, second graders, break dancing, they don't have all the, the stereotypes in their head. Like if I said, hey, we teach 17 year olds to break dance, a big portion of our community, you know, of our uh, of society would be like, wait, break dancing? Isn't that that hip hop, you know? But when I say second graders, that melts all those stereotypes away because I don't think people put that stuff on second graders. So rhetorically, I'm really using just the second grade class to show people and make sure that they, they're seeing it for what it is, because it's just art, it's just art. The other thing I heard you say in a different show was you talked about taking your shot and you kind of hit a little bit on it earlier when we were talking about how you're like, if I need something, I'm just going to get a job, figure it out and go. And I think a lot of times people are really afraid to take their shot because they don't have enough money or they're working or things hold them back. And I heard you talk about how you're like, if you're working like a nine to five minimum wage job, like it's going to be there for you. You might as well go and try something that speaks to your soul or you're passionate about. What advice would you give listeners who are afraid to kind of lean into it? It's really interesting because I think I think my situation is kind of unique, right? Um, given that I started my organization because I had the ability to go out on a street corner and raise three or four hundred dollars on average any day. Uh, when I canvass now, I raise a thousand dollars every six, seven hours. I'm on Chestnut and Steiner or 24th. I'm good. Uh, and I'm talking about the realest stuff ever. Like, you know, I don't really care how you feel about the environment. Like that, 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 that thing is harder to deal with. Cause so when I talked about environmentalism, I talked about how many black people would die in Africa with two degrees of, of temperature raise, you know, on average. Um, I didn't really talk about polar bears that much, you know what I'm saying? Um, but I, I found that talking about the people uh, that we are taking advantage of with our comfort, you know what I'm saying? That like that's what resonates, and it's really hard to say no to me. You can say however you feel about climate change and your belief and how fast it's whatever, but you know what's going on. So when I talk about something rooted in white supremacy, that's easier for me to stand stronger in than anything I've ever canvassed for before you know what i'm saying it's really empowering to stand on the corner and say hey talk to me about white supremacy and people are like what <laughs> you know and i'm in lafayette in front of trader joe's and people are like what and i was in danville and i had three people say you're in the wrong town i said no that's why i'm here you know what i'm saying like not no more um because we got permits and, and it's empowering and people need to learn that so i don't know i, I have a unique i have a unique uh, chance knowing grassroots fundraising so it was really easier for me to start this business than maybe if somebody else was doing I don't know painting for example but I do counsel people on that because if you have a product it's about your strategy uh, of raising funds and I think a lot of people don't understand how to make money uh, and they think that's only certain things can make money or it only works this way um, so I do a lot of consultation on strategy in business so how do you start that conversation with someone? You said Danville. I know where that is. How do you on the street kind of start that conversation with people? Because I will say through this podcast and especially last few years in this country, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I never realized how big privilege was for me. And, you know, talking to someone like you, like it's, an, I feel bad saying that, but I can admit it. And I'm yeah. doing and taking the steps to educate myself, to understand people's stories and what they've gone through so that I can be more of an ally and realize when I'm making decisions, what it might look like. Yeah. But 
how do you start that conversation with people? Well, first off, I think what we are doing is fighting not feeling bad for saying that because that is the right thing to do. You know, I had that same realization when I started learning patriarchy and realized that I've been being a jerk, you know, for a long time, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I think being comfortable being uncomfortable is what the goal is, you know. So I, I hope it, pretty soon it doesn't feel bad for you to say that in any way, shape or form unapologetically. You know what I'm saying? That's Getting to that point is the, is the journey. It's standing in your righteousness, not because it's difficult, but feeling dope that you went through something difficult for the right reason. You know what I'm saying? We don't we don't fight wars because we know we're going to win. Uh, yeah, you know? I I think the on my end, the apology comes from like, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I never realized it. Oh, yeah. And, that, and that's on me, 100 percent. But I always tell people, really... you don't know what you don't know or yeah. when you're in a certain community or bubble, you don't realize and once the rosy colored glasses come off, you need to realize, wow, what yeah. can I do to change this and not act blind? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that we all need to remember to see the humanity of people, even if we have to cut their heads off. I mean, Sun Tzu, right? You know, Sun Tzu said, if you really want to be the most efficient at killing your opponent, you have to know enough about them to actually love them to know the best way, right? And so... I was talking to my homie about this before. It's like, I don't even get mad at white supremacists just outwardly anymore. Cause really I see the humanity in them. You know what I'm saying? I understand that they are really thinking that's the moral frame. That's their voice. That's, that's their voice, right? Like I said before, uh, and it's based in solid morals. If you are so passionate that you would literally stand on a stupid hill because you just won't, you're not gonna question them. That you're a pretty strong person. It also makes your logic the most flimsy and also the most easy to deal with if you just talk to them and try to remember the humanity. Well, it, I, I won't say easy, but it's easier to you know get past it or defeat it if you can see the humanity and know they're based in morals. So when I talk to you know white supremacists, especially on my LinkedIn, which is popping, I always just question them. I'm like, what are you what are you talking about? Is this really what you mean? You know what I'm saying? Are you saying this about like this is how I talk to people? Qualify your statement. You know what I'm saying? I don't yell at people. I don't validate my humanity, especially not. But I always dig in. What are you talking about, homie? Um, and, and I think we need to understand that. So you only know what you know. And, and I shouldn't be mad. And no, you shouldn't actually know as a white person. Most white people do not have the, the proximity to, to us. 70% of white people don't have a person of color for a friend, let alone a hood black dude like me. Yeah, that's, that's self-reported. Yeah, we're more segregated than we've ever been in this nation because we're not washing like y'all toilets as much anymore or, or wet nursing your kids, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and segregation is a system that has been so thoroughly codified, of course, we're going to get more and more and more segregated. San Francisco is the most segregated, one of the most segregated places in the nation. Uh, and I experienced that. So I, I don't think it's, you should just know what's going on. And I don't think I should have just known patriarchy and, you know, my effect on women and men's effect on them as a social group. I, I didn't know that. We didn't even have the lexicon where I came from. You know what I'm saying? I learned that from my little sister. Shout out to Alice Mary. Um, but yeah, I, I think number one, we've got to see the humanity. And just because you didn't know doesn't mean you're evil. Doesn't mean you have a bad heart. Like we could work with that, you know, right? This is what you're doing right now. So don't, don't knock yourself for that. And also, if you want to defeat a racist, you got to see their humanity as well, because uh, they're still humans. And that means we have a, a we, we know we have a basis of morals that we can debate on. That's just it. So you mentioned your LinkedIn. I've talked to other podcast guests about their social media. Positives 
and negatives when it comes to the internet. Probably one of the negatives is people hide behind their computers, talk a lot of hate, talk a lot of misinformation where would that person normally say that to your face in, you know, 30 years ago? Would they have said that? I don't know. Some people probably, others probably not. But how do you handle those who are just talking or, you know, the white supremacists on LinkedIn, which LinkedIn shout out, do a better job of monitoring that kind of stuff, please. Like hate speech is hate speech. But do you offer, hey, let's hop on a call. Let's, I want to hear from where you're coming from. Let's talk about it. Do you individualize every message? How do you handle that? I mean, it's, it's different for different people because people are different people, right? So some some folks, I have charged money to, if you want to talk to me, you got to pay me and I'll teach you. You know what I'm saying? Some folks have also been like, yeah, homie, I'll be your first radical Black Panther friend. <laughs> Hit me up if you don't get something that you see in the media. Well, that's a very few people, you know, because I don't really have that much time. Um, but, but I'll tell you what I like to do now. Uh, I had a guy hit me up two days ago and he... I had a post that said white, that had a white lady with the sign that said white people need to end white supremacy. Um, and I was like, real talk. I was like, white people, y'all are doing worse, right? Uh, which is factual. I have data to back that up. Uh, when it comes to justice, we are backsliding. And yeah, who, who has the voting power? So I won't even explain there. Go there. Why is it that we're backsliding? Uh, I'll just say this. If we can't protect Roe versus Wade, I don't understand how we're going to protect equal, equal oh. marriage. I, and, I, and I damn for sure don't understand how they're going to help me with with, uh, you know, stopping white supremacy. That is, that, is a scary. Oh, do so, I ever like that is the scariest thing. I have family members who are part of the LGBTQ plus community who have been married. I'm wondering, like, are they going to force us? You know, if you can't make a decision about your Roe versus Wade, but how about organ donation? How about surgeries? How about this? Like. You're just opening up the door for Handmaid's Tale to some extent. And it's yeah. it's scary when people are, will say, oh, well, how much worse can it get? Well, let's look at history. Whenever yeah. people have said, how much worse can it get? Yeah. It gets worse. But it does. yeah. Now we have weapons of mass destruction too. But so... I post I post a lot of stuff, you know, talking about white supremacy. This uh, person who's not white named uh, Fall uh, on my LinkedIn, and I posted it. He sent me this message, and he sent me this message because my 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 tag is best dad ever on the end, right? He said, "You call yourself the best dad ever. What do you say to your kids? Hey, I just effed up white people on LinkedIn. Got me a hundred, a thousand likes." Oh, wow, daddy, I want to be just like you and F up white people, too. You mean they actually pay you to do that? Well, son, white folks are so dumb and so guilt ridden by false sense of history, fake guilt, being continuously hammered with hate and stupidity that they just turn around, grab their ankles and I can have my way with them. Wow, daddy, can I bring you to school on Parents Day? Why, sure, son. Are they stupid, racist, crackers, white people there? Why, yes, daddy, they are. Should I hate on them? No, just introduce me to their parents so I can spew some hate and grift me some money. Oh, wonderful, daddy. Man, I just want to be like you someday. Show enough, show enough. He broke that all out. Like, all I swear. And, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. and I usually, I usually don't really, usually nothing really hits me because I've, I've heard it all doing grassroots organizing as a black man in white neighborhoods for 14 years, right? I've heard it yeah. all, really used to it. 
but bringing my daughter into this, you know, um, I was like, I was like, damn, right? Damn, right? So what I usually do when people show their behinds, like my job is to end white supremacy. And, and a lot of that is trying to show white people, hey, this is real what we've been talking about the whole time. So what I've been able to do is take that hate and weaponize it against white supremacy, show folks on LinkedIn. So I just screenshot it, bam, put it up. Yo, man, I put it up. You can, if you care to see the post, you'll see it. It was like a couple of days ago. Um, but yeah, 30,000 views. <laughs> like they tagged both his businesses. Like, yeah, I, that dude should never be in charge of anybody. You know what I'm saying? Not a woman, not a queer person, not a black person, not anybody, not even white people. That dude is, is toxic. Um, and I don't care what, you know, I don't care, but when people come at me with that, I'm going to show the world what I deal with, period. And that's my job. So that, I put people on blast and that's how I cope. And I would almost say like, not necessarily using the term, like put them on blast, but like showing saying like, this is an example of everything I've been talking about. Like, mm -hmm. this is a perfect example. Cause I feel like sometimes people are like, well, you know, how bad it is or questioning, but that example alone just shows everything that you've been that you work for <laughs> the other thing i really love about hip-hop for change is you do a lot of programs for children who have learning impairments one, and one, one. one and yeah, we're working on it <laughs> yes but so one is a lot more than a lot of other organizations do um can you talk to us about how that came to be or was that consist of? Because I think when we talked last time, I thought that was so amazing that you are being so inclusive and you're thinking about that, even with children. Well, I got to give a shout out to one of the dopest MCs that I've ever had a chance to know, Jane The Message. Uh, she used to rock uh, one of our education programs and uh, she works with children on the spectrum. So she asked if she could do it. And I'm like, yeah, right? Because for me, I don't question the, the nimbleness of hip hop. You know what I'm saying? For me, everybody can do hip hop. I'm from that community. So I've seen everybody, regardless of abilities, do hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Some people, you know, they cope with their disabilities you are differently, you know, different abilities with hip hop, which is natural in our community. So I don't question that. That's why when I started Hip Hop for Change, I just created a program to do hip hop and to learn hip hop and the practices, the four elements, breaking, rapping, graffiti, DJ, and the history. Um, when our, our new director, Marlon Richardson, took it over, he's prolific in his pedagogy. So he helped me create the Agents of Change. Well, he created the Agents of Change program, bringing kids into the woods with ecologies, ecologists, naturalists, learning about, you know, Navy Hunters Point shipyard, sampling sounds of the forest, bird calls and putting them in beats and rapping about mother nature and graffiti and murals of sandpipers and, you know, some ground squirrels and stuff like that. It's really cool. Um, so we've been expanding this program and we've worked, you know, with math classes, break dancing shapes on the floors. We've worked with kids with other languages that didn't even speak the language that we were speaking. We just, just clapping and doing what we do. So I don't think we ever doubt the versatility of hip hop. So anytime I get somebody that I can pay or we get enough money, you know, that's how we got the Women's Empowerment Program with Lil MC and Imani Jade. And, you know, we're trying to write grants to make sure they can quit their jobs and get on there. That's why we need people to donate. So, you know, the more people give us, the more I'm going to be able to, to stick hip hop into these different places, different modes. And Marlon Richardson is going to make sure that we can fit it, you know, with whatever anybody needs, because we can do whatever anybody needs and just give it a little swag. 
where do you want, so for listeners, if you don't know, Hip Hop for Change recently became, I believe last year, a 501c3. So they mm-hmm. are right now, two years. Large, the largest hip hop education. Largest, yes. But you're now a nonprofit. And so for those listeners, obviously funding super important, but where do you want hip hop for change to go? Like in three years, do you want it in every school? Are there certain kind of uh, goals you have for the organization? Yeah, um, I was on a, uh, I was on a call with the, the CEO of the National Public Trust, right? huge like I've never spoken to somebody who was in charge of that much money and I started thinking like I think I've been thinking too small right um but as with any grassroots organization you're trying to go national you're trying to get offices in every multiple city and that's especially important when we're hiring you know mostly BIPOC folks who have been looking for a comfortable place where they don't they can be themselves where they could just be who they are so it's incumbent on us to spread down to LA next because logistically it's the best. Then New York, Chicago, right? Baltimore needs us, Philly, Miami Day needs us. So, you know, I think the mission and the movement is to expand just as big as Greenpeace with their canvas or just as big as, you know, Grassroots Incorporated. You know, we can get that big. There's no reason to think smaller. And I think because of who we are, we could probably get a little bigger. You know what I'm saying? But that will give us such, such a system of organization of funds and, and activism that we can empower our culture and kind of give kids an alternative. So with that, in those cities, we still be educating, right? So we've got the schools wrapped up in the Bay. Right now, we're you know a vendor in the school system in LA County. Right now, we're doing events down there already. So I just can't wait till we can start hiring people and teaching them the activism too. Because my goal is to spread this you know across the nation, um, yeah, and get so big that kids everywhere can see real hip hop just as big as they see fake hip hop or fake corporate hip hop, you know? No, absolutely. And for listeners, uh, I will post everything for hip hop for change so they can go and learn more, but I would also say connect with them on LinkedIn. I really enjoy what the pieces that you post, but you really provide a lot of education that is easy and digestible and is a great perspective that I don't think a lot of people get. So I end every episode with the same three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? Uh, We're not outnumbered. We're just out-organized. Love that one. Um, And then the second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you pick? So this is very difficult, right? Um, If I had all the knowledge I still have, it would be like the first day I started trying to to build hip-hop for change. But if I didn't, then it would probably be the time I went scuba diving in the Dominican Republic. That was amazing. I haven't been in a lot of places. That was cool. That was good. <laughs> I feel like anytime you're underwater, it's so peaceful and beautiful. For me, you know, they talk about astronauts. They say they, they, they feel small when they go out there and they feel more connection to that little thin veil of you know oxygen. I think it's the same thing when you're 80 feet underwater and you're like, I hope everything goes right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. For me, I felt small, but I also felt like, yeah, it was it was beautiful. It was a beautiful day. And then the final question, I'm curious what you're going to say. Um, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would you pick? It would be Black Thought, The Roots, Don't Say Nothing. Uh I love that song. And I don't know if listeners know that song, but you can go look it up. Don't say nothing. Black thought. 
that's it. And when you hear it come on and you hear his attitude, uh, that's pretty much how, how yeah, that's, that's how it's it. Well, I'm going to go ahead and add it to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify so listeners can hear it along with all the other guests' theme songs. Kafri, thank you so much. This has been really informative. I look forward to see everything that Hip Hop for Change is doing in the future. Um, if we can support anyway, I'm happy to do so. And just thank you for this really great conversation. Absolutely. And right back at you. Thank you for giving me the platform to, to, to bring new people into the movement. That's what it's about. White supremacy kills social capital in our community second to our lives. You know what I'm saying? So please go to hiphopforchange.org, subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, and a monthly donation is just eight bucks or more, right? It's like Netflix, but the babies get to chill. Uh, and we need about 300 more monthly donors to get back to where we were before the pandemic started. So rock with the yeah i'm sure the pandemic was hard so yes listeners i mean eight dollars starbucks just raised their prices so it's like a coffee and a half and it can make such a difference 